0: Leadership is lauded, following is underrated, but as we've been talking about each week, the last several weeks through this series, following is exactly what he's called us to do. And today we're gonna lean into this phrase, especially, following, especially in the game of life. All right, so I had two sets of grandparents. That's not uncommon. Many of you had two sets of grandparents. Some of you had maybe more, some of you had less. I was blessed when I was a kid. Both of my grandparents were alive when I was a little boy, a young man, and I tend to think of my grandparents in a couple of different camps. Both of them loved me. Both of them loved their grandkids very well, but as we're all uniquely wired, they loved in different ways. And I think about my grandma and grandpa, Schofield, and I can't help but think about some of the homespun farm life that they lived. I think of them in terms of the game Checkers. Communal, fun together around. Makes me think of every time I go into a Cracker Barrel, and I walk past the hearth. There's a fire, especially this time of year, and there's that rug that's kind of laid out in a checkerboard pattern. There's usually two rocking chairs right there, and every time I meet somebody there for lunch or breakfast, I think, man, I should come early or stay late, maybe invite that person to sit down with me over a good game of checkers and just kind of talk about life together. I think about Grandma and Grandpa Schofield. When I think about my Grandma and Grandpa killabrew this is the kid thinking, right? They really weren't this, but I think of them as fancy Grandma Killebrew, she would color coordinate her outfits. She would wear perfume and makeup. She, she had what she called ear screws. She didn't have her ears pierced. I guess they literally were things you screwed. Talk about a torture device for women. And that would match her outfit or match her necklace or brooch or whatever. When I think of my Grandpa Killebrew, I can't help but think of two things. A pipe. To this day, if I smell pipe smoke, it makes me think of my grandpa Kilbrew. I think of chess as well. It was about three hours to visit grandma and grandpa Schofield. That could be a day trip. Grandma and grandpa kilbrew they were in Oklahoma, Missouri, Oklahoma. This was a road trip and usually an overnight stay. Well, always overnight one of those overnights. I had been playing checkers for a while as a kid. I had learned to play this in elementary school, and I had gotten, I want to say, pretty good at it, right? But um, I was with my dad, and we were in Grandma and Grandpa Killebrew's house, and I had played checkers. I had never seen this before. Oh, wow. This was fancy. It was carved. It was a fancy checkerboard. And my dad taught me how to play chess. We would sit, and I remember being fascinated by this move right here. Oh, my goodness. I mean, checkers, you do that. But in chess, you can do that or that or that. It's pretty cool, right? And the way these different moves work just kind of blew me away. I thought it was a fascinating way to do life. And so I remember playing this with my dad. I came home. We did not have a chess set. We did have a checker set. This is how much I wanted to play chess. I actually took a um, piece of paper, spiral-bound notebook, and I wrote down on that in my cursive. I was probably third grade, fourth grade, somewhere in there. King. Queen, bishop, knight, rook, pawn. I had pieces of paper, and we played on the checker set. I remember playing with my dad until probably for Christmas or sometime I got a chess board. Checkers, chess. How many of you, I'm curious. How many of you enjoy checkers? If you had to pick one of the two, you're a checkers player. Let me see your hands. How many of you are a chess snob? Oh, I saw saw some of you do this right there. Checkers, chess. I'm not saying one is better than the other, but they are definitely different games, different strategy involved. Leadership is lauded, following is underrated, but following is exactly what he's called you to do, especially in the game of life. We've been talking about the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. I'm gonna put them back up on the screen right now. We've got this chart we've been looking at. Uh, a few weeks ago, we looked at Peter. These 12 guys... I imagine if they were typical guys they came back together for their high school reunion. I wonder how what they might have done might have played out. I look at Peter, we studied him a few weeks ago. He reminds me of an entrepreneurial, an entrepreneurial spirit, an entrepreneur. He probably had three failed startups if he came to his high school reunion, one of them stuck He's probably made some money on that. Andrew, we talked about him a few weeks ago. I picture Andrew as a great small-town mayor. James, I picture James as a high school football coach. He's especially good at the halftime speech in the locker room, motivating his players. If he didn't do that, I could see him as a motivational speaker. He was a passionate dude. We talked about him last week. Next week, we're going to talk about John. This week, though, we're going to talk about Philip. Philip. Philip, I think, is, um, if he's coming back to his high school reunion, I see him as an accountant, definitely an administrator. He's managing something in his life. I also picture him probably in his spare time, if he has a hobby, I picture him as a gamer want to apply that today. He's the leader. We've been talking about this each week. Peter is the leader of the first four. Philip is the leader of the next four. James, son of Alphaeus, tends to be thought of as the leader of the bottom four there. And these are the lists that are found of your disciples in your Bibles. Today's message, as we look at Philip, is entitled, Trust the Process. We're going to lean into this. And I want to draw an analogy if I can. I see, when I look at the life of Philip in your New Testament, I see four major stories. I'm going to call them four moves. Four moves. Now listen, I recognize. I recognize that it's not fair to take a whole man's life and boil it down into four moments in time. That's not fair. Actually, maybe when I get to heaven, I'm going to have to apologize to Philip for some of what I'm getting ready to say. But the Bible, we balance here as we study scripture. The the Bible is a selective telling, right? Not everything is included. John chapter 21, the end of John's gospel, he says Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them had been written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not be able, able to have enough room for the books that would be written. I contrast that selective retelling with there is important selection in what we have in our scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Listen, this is not an exhaustive list of what Philip did in his life, but there are four moments in Scripture we see, four moves on the game board of life. If you're taking notes, I would invite you to write these down as we track through his life together. First of all, I'm going to call this, this is his calling, his come-to-Jesus moment, We're going to call it the Queen's Gambit. Some of you are familiar. There is a TV show on Netflix by that same name. I don't know that show. I can't recommend it to you. But I do know that it's named after an ancient move. This is an opening move in chess. It's called the Queen's Gambit. Apparently, you go like this and you move your pawns like this. And what you've just done, if you're this side of the table, you're, you're inviting your opponent to, well, take a gambit and take that pawn. What that does then is it opens up your queen, right? She can move different places and be a force on the table. Now listen, I recognize this. Somebody is sitting out there and you know chess way better than I do. And I'm going to make a move at some point here. You're going to go, that's not exactly how that works. You might be wired similar to Philip. (laughs) I'm not. I tend to think a little bit more big picture. So let's just say, if that's you, that's fine. We're just going to acknowledge that. That's okay. You can just sit there and be right. I acknowledge that. (laughs) This is one of the oldest openings, and it's still commonly played today, this Queen's Gambit move. We see the opening, the call to ministry that happens in Philip's life in John chapter 1, verse 43. If you want to go there with me, I'm in John chapter 1, verse 43. Let's read together. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he's the guy we're leaning into talking about today, he, Jesus said to him, Hey, follow me. Remember, leadership is lauded, following is underrated, but following is exactly what he's called you to do. It's exactly what he called his disciples, including Philip, to do. It's even right there in the language. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. Philip found Nathaniel, we're also going to talk about this, and told him, what did he tell him? We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. We have found him. We're going to talk about that and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Well, come and see, said Philip. Let's talk about his queen's gambit moment. Let's talk about the opening of the game, this first move, his call to follow Jesus. His opening move here, in my opinion, reveals some of his strengths and his weaknesses. This is true for any of us, regardless of what your personality type is, your leadership style is. You have weaknesses, but those are strengths rather. But those strengths, when taken to the extreme, they become your Achilles' heel. They can come, can become a weakness as well. Let's look at some of his strengths and weaknesses that we see right here in the text. Philip. Philip is a Greek name. Actually, you could trace his name all the way back to antiquity. The father of Alexander the Great was called Philip of Macedon, Macedonian, back in the city-state time period of the Greek before they became empire. It's an ancient name. It's a Greek name. Philip is a young Jewish man. There's something in there that could be a strength leveraged to the nations. And I think later in his life, this does become a strength for him. Let me say this: We saw in the text that he was from Bethsaida. Bethsaida, which literally means the house of fishermen, and the house of hunter. Beth uh, Laham, for example, means house of bread. Bethsaida, house of fishermen, house of hunter. So his house, growing up, was uh, decorated with a bunch of camo. Looked like a um, Cabela's or a Bass Pro shop. I'm just kidding, but that's, that's what his town is named. It's on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, the Jewish side of the lake. Very much a Jewish man. He likely grew up in a youth group together. We're going to look at this a little bit later, but there are seven of the original disciples. Seven of them that likely grew up right there together in and around Bethsaida, a pack. They were in youth group together. By the way, moms and dads, there's something in this. In the world that we're living in today that's becoming increasingly more and more tribal, we can decry that. And yes, we need to be careful about that. Tribalism, this groupthink, especially gets exacerbated in social media and places like that, politics. But moms and dads, lean into that as a strength, I can't help but think I just saw an advertisement come out for our church. We're getting ready to take students to CIY this summer, Christ in Youth Conference, mix, move. The old youth pastor in me looks at that and says, I want all of our kids to go to that, why? There's great strength to be found here. Let me tell you where this plays out. I was having lunch with my brother, Mike, not too long ago. Mike's in ministry as well, and he was telling me he had just the night before driven to Danville, Illinois, he lives here in Indianapolis, and driven back that very same night, why? Every once in a while, systematically, periodically, through the course of years, several times he gets together with a group of men in Danville. It's halfway for him, and it's halfway from them. They're coming from Lincoln, Illinois, our hometown, and Springfield. They're both in ministry. The three of these guys, Stacy, Mike, and Chip, they gather together, and they're doing life together, an accountability group, praying for one another, holding one another accountable. I've known those men since they were young men, since they were boys, actually, in youth group together. We were in youth group together. They're all the same age, running around our house, running around the church together, going to mission trips together, going to conferences together like CIY, and they're still doing life together today. That's a richness that I would wish upon any one of your kids. This is true of Philip. He's got a community around him. Notice this, though. If these are strengths, let's lean into what might very well be an example of a weakness that's found here. Did you see it in the language? You have to look really close, and I'm probably nitpicking to point this out, but did you see this? He said, we have found him. Now, that might just be language. But as far as Philip is concerned, he's been studying the Old Testament scriptures He knows his Old Testament scriptures well. He had found the Messiah rather than being found by him. He's a detail guy. Maybe this is too much to make of in the language, but I think there's something there that we should look at. This might give us an insight into Philip's self assured outlook on life, his ability to get things done. He can pull himself up by his own bootstraps. Thank you very much. Maybe there's a weakness. We see it played out later in his life. Let's go back to strengths. Did you see when he said, come and see? I love this. Evangelism is baked into his story from the very beginning, his Queen's Gambit, his very first movie. He's just met Jesus, and he's inviting his friends. Nathaniel, you need to come and see this Jesus. You need to come and be a part of this movement. Just come and see. We've been doing this here at Venture. We turned a corner this past fall. We're talking more about evangelism. We're talking about a healthy community is a community of faith that not just, we we don't hold the truth to ourselves, but rather we want to link it to the whole world around us. We talked about one life. You have one life to invest. Who's the one life that you're investing in? And some of you went through a training to train up to see and to be better at this idea of come and see this Jesus that I have fallen in love with. We've got two more trainings that are coming up right around the corner. If you have not yet been a part of that, please mark your calendars for March 12th and March 19th. There will be a Sunday morning option. There will be a midweek option. If you have not yet done that, I dare you to come and be a part of that. This is so important. Strengths and weaknesses. in Philip, we see here in his first move, this queen's gambit, this call to ministry. There's leading evangelism. There's following Jesus literally said, come, follow me. Second move. The second move, if the first move is a chess move, the queen's gambit, how about let's move to the checker board for his second move. I'm calling this one king me. If you've ever played checkers, you know how this works. You work your way across the board. Well, nope, I lost that one, so we can't do that one. But if you make your way all the way across the board and you end up here, what do you say? King me. I love that moment. When I was in elementary school, that was a victorious moment for me if I'm playing checkers. You get to double up like that. And I learned early on that one of the strategies for checkers is You want as many of those as you can get because if you've got a king, then you can move backwards across the board. And sometimes the strategy for checkers simply comes down to who has the most kings on the board. Not true in the game of life. King me. There can be such a thing as too many kings. We see this in Philip's life. There can be only one king. He's already got a king. What's he doing saying, King me? There's this moment, a move in his story, in his life, where um, it's in John chapter 6, actually, if you want to go there. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we looked at Andrew. I want to revisit this story through Philip's eyes. And we're going to discover that Philip what he as a natural man was like. He was a student of the Old Testament. I've already said that. He had interpreted this literally. When the Messiah said, come follow me, Philip jumped in without hesitation. This was Philip's spiritual side. His heart was right. He was a man of faith. Often though, he was a man of weak faith. We said when we studied this feeding of the 5,000 a few weeks ago that 5,000 is a very conservative estimate. It was likely more than that. That's just the men that they counted. If you add in women and children, this could have been 10,000 people. It could have been 20,000 people. Philip, the leader of those four we looked at just a bit ago, he was wired administratively. Those gifts were being leveraged in his ministry to the 12 and to Jesus He was apparently the apostolic administrator. He was the bean counter of the group. There was a division of labor. Judas was the money guy. Philip, his job description was arranging meals and logistics, organization and protocol. Let's read what happens in the story. Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd. Again, this could be 10,000, could be 20,000 people coming toward him. And he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this, only to test Philip, for Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, well, it would take more than half a year's wages, the Greek text says they're literally 200 denarii, to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. He was the type of person in the meeting who would say, I don't think we can do that. Maybe the master of the impossible. Dreamers react to these down-to-earth type of leaders, don't they? I suspect that Philip and Peter, we studied him a few weeks ago, I bet that they had had words at some point in their time together. Jesus is testing Philip. He already knew what Philip was thinking. He wasn't asking for a plan. He knew what he was going to do. He was testing Philip, note this, so that Philip would reveal to himself what Philip was like. Let's apply that, shall we? How about you? Are you feeling tested today by chance? What is God seeking for you to reveal to you? Me, oftentimes when I feel tested by God, oftentimes it surrounds trust issues. I lost my mom when I was young, whether it's nature or nurture. I think there's some trust issues there in my heart that God continues to reveal to me. He says, Stan, do you trust that I work together all things for good for those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose? I'm a control freak. Most leaders are. Oftentimes when I feel tested by God, it often comes down to trust. How about you? What is it that God would seek to reveal to you as you're tested? Well, Philip, Jesus is saying, how do you propose to feed all these people? He knew that Philip had already started to count heads. By the way, there's no McDonald's down the hill in Capernaum. 200 denarii, half a year's wages. This isn't enough even to buy enough Happy Meals and bring it up the hill. Can you imagine the logistics in buying all those Happy Meals and carrying them up the hill anyway? All pessimistic Philip could see was the impossibility of the situation. This is Checker's mentality here, to say, I can't see past the next move. Note, Philip was there with Jesus when he turned water into wine. Countless times he had been eyewitness to Jesus healing people. Now all I can see is a large crowd coupled with a burden of responsibility, and he feels overwhelmed by this impossible task. The right answer in this moment would have been this. Jesus, I don't know. You've got a big problem on your hands. There's a whole bunch of hungry people out there. I don't know how you are going to do this, but I can't wait to see. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll tell everybody to go ahead and get in line because I know you've got a plan. You've got a purpose here. I seek to trust you well. We see, on the other hand, in the story, Andrew, he has a glimmer of the possibility. He finds a boy with two pickled fish and barley crackers And the meal gets multiplied. Jesus performs a miracle. Everybody walks away fed. There's actually bread left over. They collect basketfuls afterwards. By the way, the north side of the Sea of Galilee, I just find this so interesting. It's been a while since I've pulled out the hand. Let's double click in a little bit. If this is all of Israel, let's go in a little bit. Just around the Sea of Galilee, this miracle happens up here on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Right over here, just around the corner from the top, you could see it from where that miracle took place. There's a commercial fishing village called Magdala. Think Mary of Magdalene. They're pulling fish out of the lake there. I don't know where they were getting the salt, maybe from way down here in the Dead Sea. But then they would take those fish, and they would pickle them, they would put them together and preserve them with salt and ship them all over the empire. It's likely that that's exactly where those fish came from in that moment that get multiplied in this miracle. Let's dial in on this checkers mentality. Here's a lost opportunity for Philip. Why? There's too many kings on the board. Like, for example, here's a king. Maybe his fear came to light in that moment. Hear me, don't live in fear at the size of the task at hand. Rather, be in awe of the size of the God you follow. Philip has Jesus right there with him. He's seen him do this kind of thing before, perform this kind of miracle before, but he he gets lost. He said, King me. And he leaned in to the fear that became a king in his heart. How about the king of doubt? I don't know how this can be pulled off. I don't have the ability to do it. And forgetting that he's standing right next to the creator God of the universe, he's feeling all of that on himself and living in fear himself. Doubt. How about this one? Misplaced trust. Maybe he's thinking about himself and how he's got to pull this off rather than trusting the king who's asking him the question. Leadership is lauded. Following is underrated. But following is exactly what he had called Philip to do. Remember, literally, he said, follow me. But in this point in his life, there's too many cooks in the kitchen. Oh, to put it in checkers terms, there's too many kings on the checkerboard. His second move King me. This is not the best gameplay. Number three, the third move we see in his life. This is the move called castling. And I have uh, read up on this this past week. This is the only time in chess that two pieces can move at once. And the only time that a piece together with the knight can move over another piece. The king moves two spaces to the left or to the right, and the rook moves over in front of the king all in one move. It looks like that's the queen. That's not how that works. I told you I would do that. So the king could move there. The rook could move there. That's a castling move. Yeah, that's right. The rook and the king make a move just like that. What's the point I'm trying to make? This is a defensive posture. This is living on defense rather than thinking offense. Jesus said on this rock when he looked at Peter, I build my church and the very gates of Hades will not prevail against her. We're called to be on the offense, to move toward the action. Not to live in fear, not to live in defense. Let me say it this way, a good offense is the best defense Sometimes going on the move is the best way to be defending yourself. We see a story, a move in Philip's life, castling move, where he seems to retreat just a little bit into himself and maybe fall into some of the procedures and the protocols that he's wired to love so much. John chapter 12, verse 20. Again, this is a story we looked at a few weeks ago when we looked at Andrew. Let's look at it again through Philip's eyes. Now, there were some Greeks Remember he has a greek name philip it means lover of horses. Here's a moment maybe where he's holding the reins a little bit too tight as a leader trying to give instead of giving the reins over to the leader that he should be following. There are some greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip who was from bethsaida in galilee with a request. Sir they said, we would like to see Jesus. This is a golden opportunity. Greek-speaking people, Greek-cultural people coming to a bunch of Jewish men saying, we want to know more about this Jewish faith. We want to know more about this Jesus and what he has to say. Well, Philip went to tell Andrew rather than going straight to Jesus. Andrew and Philip then in turn told Jesus, a good offense sometimes is the best defense. Philip, being the typical administrative type, he probably carried around in his head a full manual of protocols and procedures. In fact, he probably had already written a policy manual, if you will. And he fastidiously devised and insisted on following to the letter. He strikes me as that kind of by-the-book kind of person. Somehow these Greeks knew that he was a policy person, and they asked him to arrange a meeting with Jesus. Now, in fairness, this would have been a confusing manual for Philip to write. He was working this all out probably inside of his own heart because on one hand, on one occasion, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 10. These 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. He sent them out as missionaries. He says, says, do not go among the Gentiles, Greek-speaking people, or enter any of the towns of the Samaritans. Go rather first to the lost sheep of Israel. This is a little bit confusing. If you contrast that, though, with the feeding of the 5,000, again, a Jewish miracle up here, there's another miracle to the Gentile people over here, the feeding of the 4,000. And as they're rowing back across the lake, this is Gentile area, this is Jewish area, Jesus challenges the disciples, hey, count the baskets. How many are left over? There's some symbolism in this. And then he says, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, this yeast that has a tendency to work its way through any subculture. He's basically saying, listen, what we do for one, we do for all. And I think Philip is still trying to process this, that Jesus has come not just for Jewish people but for all people. Philip didn't appreciate general rules of thumb. Most Philips don't. They want every rule to be rigid and standard. There's no protocol in the manual for introducing Greeks to Jesus, and Philip wasn't prepared to do something so so unconventional. So he started playing defense. Philip told Andrew. Andrew brought this uh, uh, Philip and the Greeks then to Jesus. Now, we can assume that Jesus, in turn, received the Greeks gladly because we look in just a few verses later, he preached the gospel to them, and he invited them to become his disciples. Was it right to bring these men to Jesus? Absolutely. It would have been wrong to turn these men away. Philip seems to know that in his heart, even if his head is obsessed with protocol and procedure. Game strategy, he's thinking defense. He should have been thinking offense. His third move, castling. His defense was offensive. Let's look at the fourth move in his life. This is the move, pawn promotion. Now, I am not even going to try to do this. Let's going to assume that's gone. Let's assume this one has been gone. If we land there, pawn promotion in the game of chess allows you to trade this piece, a pawn, for a stronger piece. You could trade it, for example, for this. No, not that one. This one's been off the board. For this knight. And then he could work backwards and play across the game. You could trade it for a queen, you could trade it for a bishop, you could trade it for a knight, you could trade it for a rook. Followers, pawns, becoming leaders, almost. Turn to John chapter 14. This is the last night of Jesus' earthly ministry. Leaders and followers, there's a swapping here of followers becoming leaders. Their internship is concluding. The formal training of the 12 is wrapping up. And yet their faith is still pathetically weak. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And then another example, instead of grabbing the basin and the towel and washing Jesus' feet, they allow him to serve them. Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, in the midst of this, verse 20, chapter 24, verse 25, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow you are to believe, especially Philip. Jesus' heart is heavy. He knew what tomorrow brings. And I want you to look at this discourse and kind of see what happens here with Philip. It's this moment of pawn promotion. The, 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 the pawn gets to become a leader, the follower to leader. And there's a moment here where he kind of fumbles the ball just a little bit. John chapter 14, verse 1. He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you that. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And I'll come back and prepare place and I'll come back and take you with me that you may be where I am. You know the way to the place that I'm going. Well, Thomas. Doubting Thomas pipes up in verse five. He says, Lord. Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Fair question. Jesus replies to that with this. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do not know him, or you do know him, rather, and you have seen him. Why? Well, Because you've seen me. Philip drops the hurt bomb. He says, king me. His fears pipe up. And he says this, look in verse 8. He says, Lord, show us the Father. And that that will be enough for us. Show us. How could Philip say such a thing immediately on the heels of what Jesus has just said? This is profoundly sad. Sad. Jesus is sad. Look at the way he answers. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, can you just feel the hurt in his voice? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, "Show us the Father"? But what Philip? What's he going to think? Has been going on for the last two or three years at this point. How could Philip of all people, who has responded with such enthusiastic faith at the beginning of his journey? The queen's gambit. How could he be making a request like this at the end? Where is his faith? Jesus isn't done. He's still talking. Let's see what he says. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Have you not seen the feeding of the 5,000? Have you not seen the water into wine? Have you not seen all these amazing things that I've put on display in your life? Do you not believe? For three years, Philip has gazed into the very face of God, and it's not clear to him. By the way, I told you that all seven of these men, these fishermen, likely did community together. This is Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and Philip and Andrew. They grew up in youth group together. Kind of surprising, given the stakes, you might think that Jesus would scour the whole earth to find the most gifted and qualified men to be the leaders of his early church. It seems to me, though, that he picked the seven that just happened to be hanging out together. And it's almost as if he said, yeah, well, they'll do. Listen, he chose those who were available. He chose followers. If you were interviewing Philip for the role to which Jesus called him, he might, you, we might say, well, he's out. He can't become one of, the most 12, one of the 12 most important people in the world to carry on Jesus' tradition. But Jesus says he's exactly who I'm looking for. Leadership is lauded, following is underrated, but following is exactly what he's called you to do, especially in the game of life. Did you notice? Did you notice in that pawn promotion, there's only one, there's only one game piece that you can't trade the pawn for. You could trade it for a rook. You could trade it for a knight. You could trade it for a bishop. What's the one? You can't trade it for a king. Why? Because you already have a king. You can't have two. Which makes me ask the question, what game does God play? Checkers or chess? Let me just say this. I think God invites you to checkers. Think relational. Think hanging out around the campfire. Think hanging out in the cracker barrel and having a great conversation. So, can I just challenge you? Spend some time with Him this week. And let me just say this God is the chess master. So, don't try to outthink Him. He's already two or three moves in front of you, He's the leader, you're the follower. So, stop playing games. With God, can I get you to stand up with me? I want to wrap up our time together. Just challenge you to think about this. I've got a quote by Mark Batterson. I heard this this past week. He's a an author, a speaker, a Christian thinker. He's a preacher, and he said this: It's much easier to act like a Christian than to react like a Christian are there too many kings in your life this week that tends to come out in a way we react even through an earthly lens it's easier to act like a Christian to put on a front than it is to react like a Christian can I suggest to you that something in there is this tension that we've been walking through leadership and followership if we really are following the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, even those moments of reactions, the fruit of the Spirit leaks out, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Can I invite you right now to simply think through your next week? What are you facing? What moments can you pre-decide to follow rather than leading of your own volition? Would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? And let's simply commit those moments to God because leadership is lauded, following is underrated. But following is exactly what he's called you to do, especially in the game of life. Jesus, today. We commit this next week as an act of worship before you, our God. We seek to follow well. And it's in your name in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're here today as our guest, would you know that we've got a space out here in the lobby. We'd love to connect with you at starting point. If you're here today, you've got a decision you want to wrestle through, we'd love to meet you under the cross. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you back again next Sunday.